0: How are we doing this morning? It's, uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Colin, and I get to serve as one of the college pastors here at Redemption, specifically uh, reaching and loving students in the city of Minneapolis. Uh, and that was my wife, Rachel. Uh, she did a great job. Kind of feel kind of feel obligated to say that. It's happened a few times now, so it's fun that uh, Rachel gets to read for us uh, this morning. Uh, Psalm 145, what she read, that's where we're going to be. And I personally have just loved the psalms this summer. Uh, The psalms are so unique because they give us a window into our experience as people trying to to follow after God and learn more about him. Uh, There there are all sorts of psalms that are are hard, people crying out to God and um, people processing things with God. And this morning, we're going to look at a psalm of praise. Of David, the author, lifting high the name of God. So that his heart might be stirred for worship. We're going to see David worship in order that we might follow suit and worship. So if there's a big idea for this morning, it'd be this. Really simple. Not very profound. Like, worship God. It's that simple. That's what we're going to talk about all day, or all morning, is worshiping God. Psalm 145. But before we jump into Psalm 145, I have a question for you. And that is this. Do you have any foods that make you feel nostalgic? Uh, I know I do. These were some that came to mind for me. All Summer foods. I don't know why. Summer is like the season of nostalgic foods for me. Uh, hot dog at a baseball game. Just makes me think of Little League, after, after finishing the game, like going and my dad buying me a hot dog and getting to eat it with my dad, like just nostalgia. Or uh, corn on the cob, getting to, to shuck fresh corn on the cob for my grandma in order to eat a fresh meal. But I was reminded of another nostalgic food uh, just this last week. Uh, I was at my in-laws house, and they love to stock their pantry when, uh, when I come down with food that tastes really good but is not very good for you. Um, and so I opened up their pantry. I I was hungry and I saw a can of Pringles. And there's just something that's so good and so right about Pringles, right? And you, you think of like the duck beak that you used to make as a kid or, you know, uh, when, when my hand would reach to the bottom of the Pringles can, I lamented the day that I, Realized that growing up wasn't that great because my hand couldn't fit to the bottom of the can. I had to like do the tilt instead of you know the reach. But anyway, uh, so I see this can of Pringles and all these emotions are coming back. Yes, you know I, I can start to taste in my mouth that addicting salty Pringles powder. If you've had Pringles recently, you know what I'm talking about. You can't describe it any other way. It's so good. And so I, I'm starting like my heart is starting to stir in affection for these Pringles. Oh, but, so I go to the pantry, grab the can, open it up, completely empty. Who would do such a thing? Other than me to my sisters all growing up. I mean, I, the amount of times I finished a bag of chips and put it back, like, sorry. <laughs> but I, so my heart is like, was stirring for the emotion of, the, of these Pringles. Like my, my emotions were going, it looked so good from the outside until I opened up the Pringles can and realized it was empty. Here's the leap. I think that's a little bit like our worship sometimes. That it can look good and appealing and right on the outside, and then you open it and you realize that it's empty. See, I was getting ready for this message in Psalm 145, talking about worship, big idea, worship God. And then in my personal time, I'm reading through the book of Matthew, and I came across this verse, the words of Jesus in Matthew 15. This is what it says. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are are far from me. In vain do they worship me. You see, there's a way to talk about praising God. There's a way to sing songs to Jesus, all while having your heart have no affection for him. And that's true of me. I was so convicted by that, that my voice sometimes sings songs to Jesus well, my heart is far from him. And so this morning, my prayer is that you'd get a clearer picture of what authentic, true worship of God looks like. Not not from my words, but simply from the words inspired by the Spirit in Psalm 145, that your lips would declare the greatness of God, but that your heart would be full of affection for him. Not just that Psalm 145 would inform your head or inform your actions but would stir your heart. And so here's how we're going to do that. We're going to uh, spend quite a bit of time in verse one talking about who we praise. Then we're going to talk about why we praise. And then we're going to talk about where we praise. So who, why, and where of worship. Ready? Here we go. Uh, Who we praise. Starting in verse one of Psalm 145. This is what it says. I will extol you my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Do you, do you notice the first way the psalmist addresses God? It's not God, it's not King, it's not Mighty One, it's not O Majesty, the first way he addresses God is you. And I find that really interesting. And maybe that isn't that shocking to some of us, but I think we need to come to realize how in terms of history and in terms of our current culture, how unique that actually is, that we talk directly to God, not third person through someone else, not, uh, not that we worship something that is impossible to know, but we worship something that is knowable in a you. As I was getting ready for this morning, I just wanted to understand more how other people thought of the people they prayed to and, and praised. And so I looked up a Barna article, a research article, on, on, on the people Uh, on the things people pray to. And I was so surprised by the diversity of things people would pray to. A higher power, an internal power, the universe, something out there. But as Christians, that's not who we are and that's not what we do because we praise and we pray to a you. It's, It's directed. We pray and praise a person. God is a person. He's really three persons, one entity. When We don't have time to totally unpack what the meaning of the Trinity is this morning. But what it, what it means for us this morning in terms of our praise is that God is a person and therefore God can be in relationship. God can know you and be known by you. God is a person that wants to be in relationship with us. And so when the psalmist says, I will extol you, he's saying, my praise is directed to a knowable God, but now he doesn't just say to you, God, he says to you, my God. I will extol you, my God. And as I was thinking about that, I thought back to the day that I asked Rachel to marry me. June 20th, 2020. Yes, we got engaged in the middle of COVID. Yes, we got married in the middle of COVID. It was something. We marriage married, so it's been awesome. But I, I remember June 20th, and the day you propose is a day you can say all sappy things and no one can like rip you for it, you know? You can say whatever you want, it's great. So I remember just like telling Rachel how much I loved her, I, I love you so much. You know, you're, you're my love, you're, you're my sweetie. Like I, I, mean, I just love you so much, you know? And when I, I was, as I was thinking about this, it's like I, I actually think that's a little bit of what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist isn't claiming to own God, he's claiming that like Rachel is sweet to me and her love stirs my heart for her, the psalmist is saying you are my God, that you are not just God out there, but that you are God to me, and that's good for my heart and good for my soul. You're my God, you have now captivated my heart, which allows, which changes everything about the way that I live. But this forced me to ask a question, which is this. Are there times where that's actually not true of me? Are there times where I sing, speak, and refer to God generally without having my heart be captivated by him? I pray to God, but I don't actually pray to my God. Where I talk to God, but I don't actually talk to a God that has captivated my heart. Let me give you guys a couple examples of ways that this, I'm convicted of this even now, day to day. Uh, it's so fun to, to come and teach God's word. I think it's such a privilege. And yet, uh, it's really convicting sometimes because if you want like fast track to conviction of Colin's soul, here's what it is. It's when I'm like, you know, struggling with something, and people just so kindly, with a big smirk on their face, say, hey Colin, remember when you said in a sermon, and will like quote directly what I said back to me? Uh, thank you for doing that, kind of. It's just like, oh, this, ah, you know? It, so let me give you, let me give you a, an example. I, I frequently say uh, to our college students, you know, they, they're, they're, what's put before them is all the things that the world wants them to run after. Money is one of the most prominent ones. So like, you don't need money to satisfy you. God alone will satisfy you. And then, you know, like three days after I give that message, my check engine light comes on and I know that's a $1,500 expense. And then I start whining because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so expensive, why why is life like this? Like why are car mechanics always charging me at least $1,500? It's so frustrating. Hey, Colin. Remember, God is all you need. He will satisfy But it's like, man, in, the, in those moments, I'm all of a sudden reminded, like what I said from the stage about God that I believe to be true of God, it hasn't always then penetrated my heart. In those moments, I can be like a Pringles can. Say the right thing on the outside, empty of affection on the inside. Even though we know God, we don't always know him as my God or our God. So if that's who we worship, now we have to ask the question, why do we worship that God? Why do we worship him? Here's the two things I I want you to see this morning. We worship God for his positional authority and his personal attributes. His positional authority and personal attributes. We're gonna stick to verse one before moving on. This is what it says again in verse one. I will extol you, my God and King, And bless your name forever and ever. So we praise a you, a known person. We praise my God, a personal God that's captivated our heart, and we praise a king. We praise a God that has positional authority, who's reigning over the universe. And that's true of God, He has been king. He is currently king and he will always be king. And that's the narrative that scripture tells from Genesis to Revelation is the king that reigns is God. He is the reigning king. And throughout scripture we get windows, pictures of the throne room of God. It's like where the curtain is pulled back for his people when we're reading God's word in order to see God high and lifted up on his throne reigning over the universe. They're in Isaiah and Daniel and Revelation specifically. But I think so often these pictures of the very throne room of God can still be insufficient for our hearts to bow to him. Because we don't think of God that way very often. And I think one of the reasons we don't think of God that way is because we live in a democracy. Like, the, the, the air we breathe is Democrat. Like, we get to elect our officials. We get to, uh, if they don't do a good job, we'll elect someone new the next, uh, the next election cycle. And we imprint our political view onto that of God. Let me, let me clarify that. Here's what I'm saying. I think we treat God as though we've chosen him or elected him into a position of personal authority over our lives as long as he can stay there as long as what he says he wants to be true of our lives, we want to be true of our lives. And when those two don't match up, there's a discrepancy, there's a rubbing, there's an emptiness of our worship. Let me tell you how this plays out for me. The Bible says rejoice always, and that is a good thing to read when I'm having a good day. Like, that is an easy amen for me. Rejoice always, come on, you know? But then I read rejoice always when a day where I just want to feel self-pity. Anyone else have those days, like, you just want to feel a little sorry for yourself, right? So I'm just going to look for someone who will feel sorry for myself as well and not allow me to rejoice, Right, because I want God to be the authority as long as I agree with what he's saying. Or another example where uh, God's word says, love your enemies. And I think that is great in principle until I feel like an injustice has been done to me and I'm angry and I want to go home to Rachel and convince her that I should be angry with someone and it's justified. Right, like I want God to be my authority as long as I agree with what God's saying when he's my authority. But what's true is, is that God has always positional authority. Because he's not an elected official, he's not someone we can put in office or take out of office. He is someone who's reigning, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we think, God is reigning over the universe and over all of our lives individually. He's the king. And that alone should be reason enough for our praise simply because of the position that he holds. Simply because he's king, we should worship him. So a question for you. Uh, Have you guys ever noticed how Americans are a little bit obsessed in a weird way over the royal family of England? It's like all over our news headlines. It's a little weird. I I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, But I... I think it can be a helpful reminder for us when we see them pop up in our news lines because the the royal family of England has been uh, reigning on the throne, the same bloodline, for over 1,200 years. And that is a snippet of the amount of time God has and will continue to reign on his throne. Doesn't matter what we think, he is on the throne bonus reason for worshiping God is he's drama-free. But there's there's just like, there's a kindness to God as well. Here's why. Because him being on the throne should be enough for our hearts to bow and our voices to lift to his praise. But he doesn't leave us at that. He gives us so much more reason to sing songs and to lift him high. I was reminded of 1 Samuel uh, 16. This is Samuel's parting words to the people of Israel. This is what the prophet Samuel says to Israel. He says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. What's another way of saying that? Worship God. Bow your life to him. Why? Okay, this is the next verse. The way he says, For consider what great things he's done for you. I think Psalm 145 is David's response to Samuel's encouragement. I'm going to consider the greatness of all the things God has done for me. And so he's going to spend 21 verses pouring out his heart and saying, God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we're going to just get a preview of that in in this next stretch. But the amount of time I have to cover this is insufficient. I was telling a friend uh, who lives in Georgia that uh, I was teaching Psalm 145. And he knows his Bible really well. And so he was like, wow, that's, that's a great psalm. I'm so happy you're teaching that. I hope you plan at least four hours uh, to teach it. And so I'm a little under 20 minutes in. One verse. You guys ready to go? Uh, I hope you don't have plans this afternoon. I'm kidding. I was like, dude, you go to church in the south. We're up here in Minnesota. If I go more than 40 minutes, people are snoozing. Like, no way. Uh, so I, I got to get going. Uh, but... Psalm 145, we're reading an account of of David worshiping God. Like, what's weird about Psalm 145 is David isn't telling us how to worship God. David is just worshiping God. And so we're just going to join David in saying, if this is what you're worshiping God for, then I want to just jump in and say, God, you're still worthy for that. So let me uh, give you a few examples of of what I think David's thinking about. This is what uh, verse 3 says says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. What I love about what Isaac said is, man, God's great. He's abundantly great. The only right response we can have to God is to have a great response to God, right? And then verse six, he says this, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Man, maybe, maybe David is thinking about how God parted the Red Sea and allowed Israel to walk across on dry land. I would say that's an awesome deed. Then verse 7, it says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Maybe David is thinking about how, uh, how God cleared out the enemies of the promised land so Israel could establish themselves as a nation and see prosperity. I would say that, that's the abundant goodness of God. Then verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I think David is thinking about how God has been gracious and merciful to him. How he's run to just unthinkable sins of adultery and murder. And yet, time after time, God has met him in the lowest points of his life and offered him a new life to live. That there's a God of grace and mercy. And then verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. I think David is starting to realize that God alone could be, we, we, could, we should worship God alone for his positional authority, and yet he's given us personal attributes of mercy. And we can worship him because he has showed everything in all creation, mercy. He's declaring to God the attributes of God in order to stir his affection for God. It's all about God. And I think David is doing this because he forgets. He's got the memory of a goldfish, where he's like, he's got to remind himself who God is and what God's done. He just forgets. I do this so often. I'm, maybe, maybe, this, maybe I'm just like outing myself here. but I have spent weeks or months on my knees just begging God for something. And then God comes through, and it's amazing. Sometimes I recognize it. Sometimes I don't even recognize it. Yes, praise God. Five minutes later, I get upset about something. I'm like, God, you never come through for me. Come on. Maybe it's just me, but but it's like I have the spiritual memory of a goldfish. Just so quick to forget the things that God has done for me. And so I want to go through some of those verses and tell you maybe some of the ways that our hearts can be stirred in the same way David's heart was stirred. They shall speak of your awesome deeds. As the fact that we have access to God's word in our language that's so accessible that everyone here can have a Bible or it can be on your phone and if you don't have one, we want to give you one on the way out with literacy rates that are so high that the majority of people sitting in this room can read God's word for themselves is baffling. That's like historically that shouldn't, that's like not how history is played out for the majority of time is so recent and you know what people had to fight for God's word to be in the hands of normal people second thing God uh, the, the they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness redemption this church is six years old that's really recent and we at our last BWP baptized 50 people we've seen hundreds of people baptized you know you know the average church size in America is less than 50 people? We baptize that many people at our last PWP. Talk about the abundant goodness of God and that God is gracious and merciful. And there are innumerable ways I could tell you of the ways that God has met me when I've run back to sin that I said I'd never run back to, when I, go, when I fall on frustration, when I fall back into the cares of the world, and God continually meets me, not with a heavy hand, but with mercy. He comes alongside me and he loves me. He says, God, I have a new life for you. Let's do it together. Let's, let's walk in it together. David... And hopefully we are saying to God attributes of God in order to stir our worship for God. I hope we see the ways that David's doing it and the ways that we can do it. But I don't want to miss one of the unique ways that David is doing this in Psalm 145. That we actually miss in translation. And so Psalm 145 is called an acrostic psalm where each line of the psalm starts with a a letter in order for that, that to mean something vertically, so to speak. And what David is doing is he's walking through all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet from the first letter to the last letter, declaring to God who he is and what he's done. So basically what he's doing is he's giving the A to Z of who God is. It's his theological ABCs. And so a a couple of years ago, I, uh, I gave our soul company the A to Z of who God is. I won't do that. I will spare you. But I will give you the ABCs of who God is, what this might look like. That God is A. He's the author. He's written a story of his glory into the world and into our lives. That he's B. That he's beautiful. That all that he makes is good, and he captivates the hearts of those who see him, that he see he's the creator, that he gives breath to all living things, and he sustains the world by his word. That's just the ABCs of who God is, and David goes from A to Z of who God is, documenting his positional authority and personal attributes. And so here's how I want to end. I want to end by giving you five places that I want you guys to sing your or rehearse your theological ABCs, right? Like a kid who's eager to, to, that's learned the tune of their ABCs, that's eager to sing it in any and every place. I want us to be a church that's eager to rehearse our theological ABCs. So not that these are the only five places to rehearse your theological ABCs, but these are five good places to rehearse your theological ABCs. All right, this is the where of where we worship. This is uh, the first place. Private spaces. This is what it says back in verse 1 to verse 3 of Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It seems to me that David is finding a way to daily remind himself of the worthiness of God and why his worship should go to God alone. And I'm guessing the primary way David is doing that is by reading and meditating on God's law, opening up God's law and just, yes, God, this is good. This is good for me. You're good to me. And I want us to be a church that reads and cherishes God's word. I love that about this church, that we are people that love God's Word, but I want to talk quickly to the people who are struggling to get in God's Word, because I know I walk through seasons like that, and so maybe for you, you're uh, a new parent, or uh, maybe for you, you're, you're a working parent, and just trying to figure it out, or you're in a job transition, or you're in a new rhythm of life, or frankly, you don't know what's going on in your life. You're just really struggling to get in God's Word, and I just want to encourage you with something, because Man, I can so often be led to discouragement when I'm in those seasons. For me, it's often that I wake up and, and I, I just like am busy and so I forget. And so then you, usually it's my drive to work or I'm sitting at lunch where I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't read my Bible today. And then it starts to spiral from there of, oh, I can't remember the last time I read my Bible, and frankly, I can't remember the last thing I read when I read my Bible, and now it's Monday afternoon, and I don't even remember what was talked about yesterday in the sermon. Like, I'm just in a, how, how can I know and love God's law if I can't recall anything that I've read or listened to recently? What do I do then? What's funny about discouragement is the cycle of discouragement is one of the last things that compels us to get in God's Word. It just doesn't work. So here's something that I've found that works for me, and maybe it'll work for you, which is when I find myself in those moments of, oh my goodness, I didn't read today, to just stop, quiet my heart, and remind myself that I can know a truth, I know a truth of God that can matter for my life today. And so maybe it's something simple like John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I can remember that if God loves the world, God loves me. God is L loving. And I can think about that. Bible not open, driving a car, I can think about the reason or I can think that God loves me and that will change the way I live. Or my go-to is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. And I'm thinking, man, I didn't read today. I need the soul restoration. And when I am reminded of Psalm 23, I'm reminded that reading my Bible doesn't restore my soul. God restores my soul. And I can meditate on the truths of God without opening my Bible. And I'm not saying you shouldn't open your Bible, but what I am saying is when we learn to love God's word and when we're meditating on it and saying, yes, God, this is so good, I think that will be the primary uh, motivation for you tomorrow morning to open God's word. And see it again afresh and say, yes, God, this is good for me. And that you should be a worshiper in private places. Rehearsing your theological ABCs when no one else is around. The second place I think we should rehearse our theological ABCs is in corporate places. The rest of these will, will go a little bit faster. But this is verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another, and they shall declare your mighty acts they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. Guys, coming together as a church matters because uh, it is true that God is my God, that I have been captivated by the love of God, but what's equally true, and that can be true for you, and that's important that you have a personal relationship with God, but what's equally true is that God is our God and that we seek him together That the church, the gathering of his people matters. That you singing and you being stirred by God's word actually helps me to sing a little louder, actually helps me to be stirred all the more to know and love God's word. The other thing that I just love, and I just want to encourage you guys, is that redemption, you all, take verse four really seriously. One generation shall commend your works to another. We have two soul companies. That's amazing. You guys sacrifice personally in order to see the next generation come to know and love the truths of God. Thank you. We have a kids ministry that's growing because you guys are so good at allowing the kids ministry to grow. I mean, keep going, church. (laughs) Some of you are a little slower. There it is. Uh, But you guys serve in the kids ministry. And you love our kids' ministry. Why? Not just because it's a a need to fill, but hopefully it's because you want those kids to grow up to know and love and cherish the truths of God. We're a church that loves the next generation really quickly. I just want to talk to the college students in the room. You guys are the next generation. One, realize what a unique season this is that you're in a church that loves you specifically, and two, 20 years from now, would you prioritize taking what you've learned and what's been given to you and giving it to the next generation? Place three, the third place we should rehearse our theological ABCs is with your words. This is what it says. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. In an old uh, wisdom book known as the Talmud, uh, the encouragement, this, the piece of wisdom that's written in it is to verbally recite Psalm 145 three times a day, twice in the morning and once at night. And I think the encouragement is that because they learned something that's true of me and I'm guessing is true of you, which is this, that your words shape your heart. It is absolutely true that the overflow of our heart can be our words, but I think it's equally true to say that our words can actually inform and shape our heart. Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was just wrestling with God in one of those seasons where, I, man, God was just, it felt like he wasn't answering me. It felt like he wasn't hearing me. And I was laying in bed and I said, God, I'm mad at you. And I think it really caught Rachel off guard. I think she was like, wow, okay, here we go. Uh, but the next thing out of my mouth and this is by the spirit of God alone, is I started to recite what I knew to be true of God. God, I'm mad at you, but you're F, you're faithful. You're L, you're loving. You're R, you are a redeemer. You're you're seeking me, you're loving me, you're gracious, you're merciful. I started to verbally say what I knew to be true of God. And it's funny because when those words came out of my mouth, it's like that's what it took in order for them to pierce my heart and become true there. I needed to say with my mouth the things that my heart needed to believe. And maybe that's true for you. The fourth place to rehearse your theological ABCs is at work, at your vocation. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I wish I had more time to unpack this. But regardless of what you do, if you're in finance, if you're an engineer, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher if you're a stay-at-home mom, your work matters. It matters to the world. It matters because it's God's primary means of provision for you, and it matters to God. Your work is a reflection of who God's made you to be. You see, God's a worker. God creates workers. That's a, that is a means by which we reflect the glory and goodness of God, is by working with our hands and God, I love to sit on a beach as much as the next person drinking a pina colada. I mean, it's hard to argue that. But I don't know about you, if I go on a vacation for long enough, I'm starting to like get stirred by the end of vacation. Like, I need to do something. I can't just just do this for the rest of my life. It feels like it'd be a waste. Why? Because vacations are great, but we are made to be workers. Which means that in your work, even if you can't find a direct spiritual implication to it, you can rehearse your theological ABCs. If you have a singing voice like mine, don't do it at work. Your coworkers will hate you. Uh, fifth place to rehearse your theological ABCs. Last one is in brokenness. In the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of your heart. This is what verse 14 says The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. God has status as king, He's reigning he's ruling, he's high and lifted up. And God is near to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. God is a high king, but he's also a near friend that wants to walk with you, wants to be with you in the darkest days of your life. Which means if God is near you in the hardest places that you will go to, What's true is you can muster every fiber of muscle in your being to lift your hands and to say, God, I will worship you in the valley of the shadow of death because you're there. You're with me, you're patient, and you're kind. We can worship God in our brokenness and in our suffering because it's in those places that he draws all the more near to us. Here's the way that this is proven to us most prominently, is because God, who is on a throne high and lifted up, got off the throne. And put on human flesh, and walked the earth. And on earth was his coronation ceremony, but the coronation ceremony wasn't held with a crown of jewels on a throne, but it was held with a crown of thorns on a cross. That is the way that your king was coronated, is he went to the darkest places of the universe so that you wouldn't have to go there. So even in your suffering, you can worship a God who suffered. You can worship a father of the hurting and a son of suffering. You can worship a God who meets you in your pain and draws near to you in it. Because that's who God is. And that's a God that's worthy of our worship. And so yes, when you are on the mountaintops of life and it can be easy to declare your theological ABCs, would you do it loudly, proudly, helping others to join in your chorus? God, this is who you are and this is who you are to me, but also know that in the valley of the shadow of death in the hardest days that you will ever walk through, God is equally worthy of your worship and that actually your worship is the thing that will all the more r- allow you to recognize that he's there with you in those places. Let's pray. God, you are the author of our story. You are beautiful, You are creator, and you are king. And God, you reign, and so God, we surrender to you, under you, bowing our hearts and bowing our lives that recognize that you alone are king of the universe and king of our hearts. But God, thanks for not giving that as just the reason to worship you. But God, thanks for meeting us in our darkest days, meeting us in our sin, meeting us in our brokenness, and giving us a new life. That in the resurrection of Jesus, We see that that's no longer the end of the story, but that there's new life to be had, that God, we are now an heir with you, and that you are bringing heaven here. God, we, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.